Scoops with Danny Mac, the podcast on 101 ESPN. Two-two pitch. Molina serves it into right center. There it is. Hit number 2,000 for Yadier Molina. The 12th catcher in the history of Major League Baseball with 2,000 hits. One of the greatest ever to put on a Cardinals uniform. And there it is. Hit number 2,000 for Yachty. Great moment last night at the ballpark. Unfortunately, no fans, but a historic milestone. Yadier Molina, the 12th catcher in the history of baseball to get hit number 2,000, and that would seal it in my mind. He is headed to Cooperstown with that. Only 12 catchers have done that in the history of baseball. 2,000 hits for Yadier Molina. Welcome into Scoops with Danny Mack on 101 ESPN. The numbers are just mind-boggling when you think about what Yadier Molina has done in St. Louis. And now at the age of 38, it is 2,000 hits for Yadier Molina. We're going to visit with Alex Ferrario. We'll get into the Alex Petrangelo situation in just a moment, but more on Yadier Molina and some of the milestones and what he has done. And he becomes the sixth St. Louis Cardinal to collect 2,000 hits while a Cardinal. Stan the Man, Lou Brock, Rogers Hornsby, Albert Pujols, Enos Slaughter, and Yadier Molina. So the last to do it was Carlos Beltran. That was in 2012. Others not uh, listed as Cardinals, but doing it in St. Louis. Bobby Bonilla did it. Gary Gaetti, Willie McGee, Ozzie Smith, Joe Torre, uh, Van Pinson, Dal Ennis, uh, Frankie Frisch did it. Uh, Jesse Burkett did it as well. They were in St. Louis getting number 2,000, but 2,000 hits as Cardinals, and Yadier Molina has now added his name to that list. His 1,000th hit, that became um, a milestone for Yadi. He did that against the Mets. That was off of Matt Harvey. That was an infield hit, of all things. He has 380 doubles. That is fourth all-time in Cardinals history. Triples, he's got seven. Home runs, 160. uh, Multi-hit games. He had another one last night, 534. That's seventh all-time in Cardinals history. And pretty amazing. Yachty now with 2,000 hits. So congratulations to Yadier Molina. Afterwards, had the chance to visit with Yachty. He threw on the headset. And I asked him how he's really changed. He came up in 2004, how he's changed as a hitter throughout his career. When first I came up, I mean, I was all focused about my defense. That's what Tony and Dave Duncan want want me to do. I mean, obviously we got heroes like Pujols and Edmond Rollins and other guys that they can do, they can bring the offense. And they need just a, a catcher that can call a good game and, and throw the guys out, block balls. And right now, I, I'm, back then I was focused on that. And then I started working with Cheito Kendall with my brothers. They give me advice to get better on, on my offense. And I think that was in after the World Series in 2007. Um, that's when I started learning more about my offense right now I'm I'm thank God that I'm in this position right now. 2006 he had the home run in game seven against the Mets and really at that point that postseason became a different hitter changed as a hitter need to see his brother Benji on the Spanish broadcast last night at the ballpark and Yachty gets number 2000 Mike Schild on his reaction to seeing Yachty get that milestone it's uh it's it's you know shoot that's a heck of a milestone man I mean you know 2000 hits that's a lot of darn hits 
And what's even more impressive about it, and some of you guys can recall, uh, you know, this wasn't an offensive-oriented player when he came into the league and has turned himself into a, a very, very capable Hall of, Fame, um, Hall of Fame caliber player, clearly, and 2,000 hits is an amazing milestone in this organization and a lot of respect and well-deserved congratulations to Yachty. Yeah, congratulations to Yachty, and he is undoubtedly the captain of this team for Mike Schild. Um, really, just down, gets down to trust. Stuff was good. He's a pitch maker, and he made you know some close misses um, with Garcia and then Yelich. Obviously, a decision right there. You know, locked in with Yachty. You know, Yachty's like the quarterback of the team. You know, you trust the quarterback to make a play and and to, and to give you guidance. And you know, clearly, I understand it's my decision. I make them all the time. But you know, I felt good about the matchup. And candidly, you know, we've had some righties go out there against Braun, and he's done some damage against them. So, like, you know, let's take a shot with a guy that's a pitch maker and and has has the experience to do it. Nothing is Gio because he's got experience too. He's the one warming up, but just didn't mind the fact he could go ahead and make a pitch to Braun, and and um, and he did. He you know tough at bat and got the pop up to right. So Mike Schilt leaned on Yachty. They stayed with KK to face Braun. The game was on the line in the fifth, a move that paid off, and some other offense to tell you about from the youngster, and that was Dylan Carlson. The two-one pitch to Dylan Carlson. And Carlson hits a high fly ball out to deep right field. It's at the wall. It is gone. Dylan Carlson, high towering shot. He kept it fair. A two-run homer for the rookie. 3-1 St. Louis. Starting to see him come into his own. He drove in three last night. Also had an RBI double. And you can see he's making the adjustments now second time through. Just trusting myself. Uh, the big, the big thing coming back here has just been uh, from both the team and my perspective was just to trust myself and play the game the way I play. Uh, you know, I kind of got out of that at the beginning, and uh, you know, like I said, the big focus coming back was for me to come back and be myself and uh, go out there and just understand that what I did to get here plays, and you know, we'll make adjustments accordingly. But you know, we need to, we need to just go out there and play the game. Audio courtesy of Fox Sports Midwest. Doubleheader today, Jack Flaherty going in game number one. So this is how the standings shake out with the weekend here. The Cubs, they are 32-25. and 25. They've got the White Sox, the Cardinals 28-26. They're two and a half back, Cincinnati three out. And then Milwaukee 27-29. They are four and a half out and two back is St. Louis. Back to the Cubs. They dropped three of four against Pittsburgh. They lost yesterday seven to nothing. They only had two hits. Now, the Cardinals went one for 16, by the way, with runners in scoring position. We've talked about their woes offensively. And this is how they're feeling in Chicago. This is David Kaplan. One of my, <laughs> he's one of my buddies. He went to Twitter after the game, and uh, this is kind of their mindset going into postseason play. Hey, welcome to the recap of that riveting, amazing Cubs 7-0 loss to the Pittsburgh Pirates in Pittsburgh, where they got, see, one, two, that's all they got. Two damn hits. Two. Are you kidding me? Are you freaking kidding me? Joe Cool had a no-hitter in the sixth inning. I know, he's Charlie Cool. Tommy Waddle nicknamed him Joe Cool. Six innings, he's in there with a no-hitter against this lineup. And you lose three of four to the Pittsburgh Pirates. It's a freaking joke. Folks, they need Chris Bryant back. They need him to find a way to be healthy because if he's not at the top of this lineup hitting second, they got no shot. 
other than Rizzo, who's trending in the right direction, a couple home runs in the series, had a double today, they've got nothing going offensively. Literally nothing. When was this team good offensively? When Ian Happ and Jason Hayward were playing well above their normal expected offensive productivity levels. The other guys? Hey, Javi, here's a baseball. When it's 18 inches outside, a slider diving toward the dirt, don't swing at it. You look awful. Love Javi Baez, but he looks awful. This team's offensive approach looks awful. Not good. And the playoffs next week? Playoffs? I just hope they can win another freaking game. Playoffs. Are you kidding me? Everyone's like, well, maybe they'll get hot when they get to the playoffs. Playoffs? Playoffs. That's funny. Alec Mills, he wasn't very good today. He's Alec Mills. He threw a no-hitter. Great. That was an awesome moment for him. He's meh. That's it. Now you're going into guaranteed rate. A White Sox team that's going to be really angry no matter what they do tonight. They are going to be an angry team coming off a tough series in Cleveland. Chicago Cubs, you better look in the mirror and find a way to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Because right now, offensively, you suck. Awful. Embarrassing. You know what they're great for right now? Putting people to sleep. It's as boring as I've ever seen the Cubs look. Breaks my heart to say it. They look horrific. Find a way to win a baseball game this weekend, folks. Take that. Oh, my. Yeah, that's what's going on in Chicago. That's our buddy David Kaplan. ESPN 1000 in Chicago. What a beauty. Um, by the way, the five, uh, five bottom teams offensively, all from the NL Central. So it's not just here in St. Louis. There are teams that are across the board in the Central struggling offensively. Again, the Cardinals struggled last night with runners in scoring position, but they're bailed out by Dylan Carlson. Yachty hit number 2,000. Great moment at the ballpark. Flaherty going today. You got Wayno and Yachty over the weekend. Maybe the final time regular season that they hook up as battery mates. We're going to talk a little hockey. That's coming up next with Alex Ferrario, and we'll talk about Alex Petrangelos. More of what you want to hear. Scoops with Danny Mac in podcast form on 101 ESPN. Time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, 1024 in St. Louis. Alex Ferrario is our guest. And Alex, let's jump into some hockey talk here with the St. Louis Blues. Gary Bettman saying yesterday that basically NHL camps can fire up in what, about a month or so? Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah, so they're looking at they're approaching it the way that they approached phase two in the return to play, Dan. And if people remember the return to play of what they tried to get the playoffs started, they started phase two where basically they said, you know, the facilities are going to be open for players. If they want to come practice and skate, they can congregate in small groups, but it's not like a normal training camp. Like you can't have your entire team on the ice yet. So they're approaching it as phase two, which I believe is going to start in about October, I think. And really, that's a benefit for these teams, Dan, that didn't go to the playoffs. Like, think about the Detroit Red Wings. You know, their season halted in March, and then they didn't return to play. So it's essentially March until December, January, where they can actually start playing again. So they're opening up this phase two to get these guys on the ice in small groups, which I would imagine the people that live in St. Louis, meaning the players, 
you know, they're going to take advantage of just being able to hit the facilities and go out there and skate. Let's get a bunch of topics done here. If you want to talk to Alex Ferrario and have questions about the Blues, text us 65780. I'll try to get to as many questions as I can. 65780. <clears throat> In terms of uh, the St. Louis Blues and, and when the season may start, what do you think? You know what, Dan? Uh, Bill Daly was on the uh, a podcast with uh, Pierre Lebrun and Scott Burnside, and he really said that it's all up in the air right now. I think originally they wanted to start in beginning of December so that they can try and get an 82-game schedule in. I really don't think that's going to be possible, and it didn't sound like Bill Daly felt like it was possible. I think what you're more realistically going to see is the end of December or possibly the beginning of January. Beginning of January makes the most sense because you kick the NHL season off with the Winter Classic, which would be the Blues and Minnesota Wild, and then they push it back as far as they can to try and get some type of fans in the building because the bubble play is just not going to work with these players for the regular season. So if I were a betting man, which sometimes I am, sometimes I'm not, uh, I would say you're looking at beginning of January. Winter Classic is when the season starts. Reaction to the bubble. What has been the reaction from the NHL? Number one, it's worked, which yeah. has been phenomenal. But number two, the players' reaction to the bubble. Now, I think you know the the players' reaction is one. It was a success in terms of being able to crown a Stanley Cup champion and the safety for these players. I think that's the more important thing for these guys. But then you dive deeper into it, and Greg Wyshynski and Emily Kaplan put an article out on ESPN. Uh, Dan. Uh, talking about just the players' overall thoughts on the bubble. And really, they weren't happy because the commodities that they were promised never really came to fruition, meaning, you know, excursions, going hiking and golf outings. And I think the NHL, at least from the players' perspective in the article, the NHL said that to get these players to agree to come to the bubble. And then once they got into the bubble, I think they realized it was a lot more difficult to accomplish with all of these excursions. Uh, from what I understand, Toronto's bubble was a lot better than Edmonton's, meaning they had a, uh, a soccer field that the players could go to and just kick the ball around a little bit um you know they had the opportunities to golf and just get out of the place but in edmonton they called it like a prison which i know it's not a prison but it's basically a concrete platform that you can walk outside with fences around it and if it's not that you're in the building so i think the players are happy that they were able to accomplish this but i also think the players will never do this again because it wasn't what they thought it was going to be so what did the players do all day Pretty much, at least from the player's perspective, either sit in your rooms, go out into the meeting area, which is for your player, your team, and you could sit around and, you know, have drinks, eat, watch television, or you walk outside into the concrete platform. That pretty wow. much was it. And I think a lot of the players discussed them having the opportunities just to go watch games, which... The beginning's probably great, but once you get deeper into it, it's probably boring. 636, how would the Blues spend the money if they're unable to sign Petro? Would Taylor Hall be a remote possibility? I don't think so. Uh, Taylor Hall is going to command seven, maybe $8 million. I don't know if somebody's going to pay him that, but it's going to be somewhere between six and seven he's going to get. And if you think about this, Dan, um, if you don't sign Alex Petrangelo, that's $2 million that you had in cap space, and you traded away Jake Allen, so that's $4 million. You'd have about $6 million, and you do have to lock up Vince Dunn. And if you don't sign Petro, Vince Dunn has to be locked up, and that's going to command 2 to $3 million. So with another 2 to $3 mil, I, I don't see how the Blues can make a significant upgrade that makes people excited because we all know Doug Armstrong likes to keep himself 
a million dollars wiggle room with that salary cap floor. So uh, I think if Petro doesn't get signed, there's a possibility a trade could happen to open up some more cap space and bring somebody in. But I don't see anybody like a big name Taylor Hall coming to the St. Louis Blues. Three one four. Am I wrong to believe that trading for Falk ensured Petro leaves? I know everyone looks at it that way. I don't. I think Doug Armstrong's thought process was there is a possibility that Alex Petrangelo could go, but I also think Doug Armstrong's thought process was, hey, here's an all-star defenseman that's available for basically nothing. You give up Dominic Bach, Joel Edmondson, and a draft pick, and you were able to re-sign this guy. So I, I know people compare the two. But in Doug Armstrong's mind, I think he really thought that Alex Petrangelo and Justin Falk could be accomplished together. Because remember, when Falk was acquired, the salary cap floor wasn't going down. It wasn't staying flat. It was going up possibly to 84 to $85 million, which would have given this team a lot more wiggle room and probably could have easily signed Alex Petrangelo. So I know people look at it that way. And yeah, it does seem that way. But I just think that was Doug Armstrong trying to upgrade the defense. And unfortunately, it looks that way now because the pandemic hit. I really felt Falk was the best player they had in the bubble defensively. He was. He was the best player so defensively. Right yeah, you were, right. Dan. That is a keen hockey eye on you, like we wow. all know. I know. But he was good offensively. haven't lost it yet. <laughs> he was good offensively, though, Dan. I mean, he was your best defensive player on that team in the postseason. And look... I know Justin Falk has not been good this season, and I'm not saying that the Blues are going to get you know a preliminary elite defenseman out of Justin Falk in a year. But remember what happened with a couple of those players the year that they last year when they brought in Pat Maroon and Tyler Bozak and Ryan O'Reilly and Perron. You're like, why aren't these guys clicking? It's a new environment. Imagine being Justin Falk, where you've spent your entire career being the number one defenseman, power play, penalty kill, five on five, late games. You're the go-to guy. Now imagine going to another team and being the third guy on their roster in terms of defensiveness. You're not playing the power play. You're on the penalty kill, which you really aren't usually on that, and you're playing on your offhand. I think what we saw in the postseason was that was Justin Falk being able to play his normal role. So if down the road Alex Petrangelo doesn't happen, I think Justin Falk can be better what he was advertised last season. 636, how close is prospect uh, Scott Pernovich? Yeah, a lot of people are hyped up on Scott Perunovich, Dan. Um, you know, this was the guy who was the Hobie Baker Award winner last year. It's, it's a small defenseman, and I think a lot of people are, are comparing him to what Kale McCarr is for Colorado and Quinn Hughes is for Vancouver. I don't know if you're going to see that right away, but I do think they have something special in this young guy. We had the head coach of his college team on This Week in Hockey a few months ago, and he said his hockey skill is there, but his hockey IQ is what's impressive, and that's what makes him an NHL-caliber player in his eyes. I don't know if he's going to be on this roster right away. If he impresses in training camp, I think you could see this as an NHL player. I'd say you're going to see half of a season in the AHL if they have the AHL this season. But midseason this upcoming year, I think we'll see Scott Perunovich at some point. Okay, let's go to the 314. Does Pareko really have number one defenseman potential? What do you think? I think so. I think if you look at what Alex Petrangelo was in his first five years, he wasn't a number one defenseman, but he was getting to that point. And then, of course, once uh, once David Backus left, that's where it really kind of blossomed for Alex Petrangelo. And, of course, when they acquired Jay Bomeister, I'm not saying Colton Pareko is going to be Alex Petrangelo because Petrangelo is an offensive guy. And I don't know if Colton Pareko can be that. He's got the slap shot, but he's got a lot more work to do there. But in terms of defensive ability, I think he's one of your best defensemen. 
And if you look at without Alex Petrangelo, Colton Pareko could be looked at as a 20-plus minute a night guy. I think he can handle that, but I think the offense is what's going to struggle for Pareko, at least in the get-go. 6-1-8. When the draft comes around, Blues feel if they can't sign Petro, could they trade him and his rights to any of the teams like, say, Toronto for Nylander? You could, uh, hypothetically, but I don't see Toronto trading away a William Nylander just for an Alex Petrangelo. You got to understand with these sign and trades, you know, they're very rare when they happen, but when they do happen, you know, John Tavares was an option. Pierre Lebrun put in an article and Steven Stamkos was an option, but to trade away a guy's rights, one, you'd have to get Alex Petrangelo's approval because he does have a no trade clause. Does Alex Petrangelo, if he's ticked off at the blues enough, Does he agree to a no trade to try and give the Blues a commodity in return? But if you look at a sign and trade, you're looking at, you know, you're probably going to get a draft pick back or maybe somebody wanting to shed some salary. But if you trade away Alex Petrangelo, you're putting yourself in another cap restraint getting William Nylander, who's making six plus million dollars a year. So I would say it's it's out of the realm of possibility that Alex Petrangelo's rights are traded away. Now, the Blues could sign him and trade him. But I don't see why you would do that, because if you come to an agreement, you'd rather just sign the guy and keep him than trade him for a pick. 3-1-4, Pat Maroon, if he wins a cup, does he retire? No. Why would he? I mean, he's he's uh, this is the third straight year that the Stanley Cup has had back-to-back players in the Stanley Cup final. Pat Maroon, uh, David Perron with Vegas and St. Louis, and then Fleury with Pittsburgh and Vegas. Why would you? I mean, if I'm Pat Maroon and I've just won two Stanley Cups, that means either Tampa wants me back and they'll give me another one-year contract, or there's another team that's on the cusp of a Stanley Cup that needs that locker room presence that has worked twice, so they're going to go out and get Pat Maroon. I wouldn't be surprised, Dan, if a Vegas comes calling to Pat Maroon this offseason if Tampa wins and says, okay, well, he's won it with the Blues, he's won it with Tampa, Let's put this guy in our locker room and see what happens. Who do you think wins the Cub? I think Tampa does. I I said Dallas uh, once they won game one because Dallas just looked unstoppable. But Tampa has solved Anton Hudobin. And I think that's what's been Dallas's key right now is their goaltender. Um, Tampa has eliminated the defense, the young defenseman that Dallas has. Um, Tampa's goaltender is playing out of his mind, Vasilevsky. And when you put Steven Stamkos on an already dynamic offense... I don't know who can stop that. So I think Tampa's going to run away with this one. Let's dive into Petro. Where are we right now with uh, negotiations? So the negotiations, at least from what the reports are, Dan, that they've broken off. And this was Jeremy Rutherford reporting that, Darren Dreger reporting that last weekend. Um, And I think we're still in that place right now. I think from the Blues perspective, it's, hey, let's see what's out there for free agency for you. They've told Alex that. And from Alex's perspective, they haven't met what he wants. And it's been a couple weeks now where they haven't found a way So it feels like we're at a hockey chicken right now where Doug Armstrong set his flagpole, Alex Petrangelo has set his flagpole, and it's right now come to, okay, who's going to call somebody first? I think this is going to get to the first day of free agency, if not hours before, where somebody picks up the phone and says, hey, where are we? And then it's either, okay, let's see if we can come to an agreement or still go test free agency. I'm still optimistic this gets done because this seems a lot like Steven Stamkos was a few years ago where Tampa did this with him, played hardball, Toronto, San Jose, Detroit came calling, and Stamkos held in-person meetings. 
did a couple of them, and then he basically said, okay, that's enough. I want to go back to Tampa. So I think you're going to get to this point. But right now, we're just at a chicken. We're at a, a standhold for both teams trying to decide what's best for the organization and the player. So what is it about? Is it about money? Is it length of deal? Is it no trade? Where are we at? So, and this is just reports right now, which is so hard to understand, Dan. You know this. You only hear one side of it. You don't know both sides. But what we're hearing is the Blues have offered him an 8 by 8 contract. But with that 8 by 8 contract, Doug Armstrong, and again, this is just reports, Doug Armstrong has said, okay, accept this, and then we'll tell you what the terms are. And Alec Petrangelo is stating, no, I want to know the terms because the terms are the important factor. From the reports, Petra wants a no-movement clause, and Petra wants a signing bonus. And for people that don't know what signing bonuses are, that's basically just guaranteed money if there's another lockout, a pandemic, a strike, whatever it may be. Petrangelo's money is is guaranteed or if there's a possible buyout. But even with a buyout, you're still guaranteed two-thirds of your contract. So that's just the reporting right now. It's hard for me to believe that because Doug Armstrong is a smart man. And we had Brian Lawton on, who's a former NHL agent and general manager, and he did negotiations with Doug Armstrong. And Lawton said this is a smart, intelligent general manager, but this is a guy who is a, a hard ass. He is not going to back down. Um, so I, I think it's more it's more of the term and the structure in the contract. I think Petro is willing to ne- to negotiate and accept a little hometown discount for this Blues team, but he wants that guarantee that this is going to be his last stop, and he wants that guarantee that he is going to get paid the money that he deserves. What kind of player could he be at age 37, 38? I think he could be a Jay Bowmeister. I really do, Dan. I think for, let's say you give Alex an eight-year contract, which is what the Blues can only offer him. Unless they trade his rights, then somebody else can give him an eight-year contract. You sign Alex to an eight-year contract, Dan, you're getting a top five defenseman in the NHL for five years, meaning he is the number one guy he is the Duncan Keith to your St. Louis Blues and we all know what happened with Duncan Keith in Chicago they won a lot of cups together after that fifth year though I think it drops down a little bit you know 35 years old you never know Petro may stay healthy but if he doesn't you digress a little bit but I think at that point he still is your second best defenseman on the team with Colts and Pareko outdoing him but I think once you hit year six seven and eight You're going to get a top four defenseman on your team, a guy who is a defensive responsibility for you. He's a penalty killer. Maybe not on the power play for you anymore, but he is going to be a go-to guy in crunch minutes, just like Jay Bomeister was. And you're getting that veteran leadership. You're getting a captain for the next eight years who has won a Stanley Cup, who knows what it takes to get to the Stanley Cup. That, to me, is worth every penny of keeping Alex Petrangelo around. His, His skill may drop off a little bit when he gets older, but that that hockey knowledge and experience is going to be crucial for this team in a transition. Best landing spot for him in terms of a chance to win and money and length of a deal. So if I put myself in Alex Petrangelo's shoes, Dan, and I hit free agency, you know, everyone wants to say Toronto. I don't think Toronto's a, a great spot for him. One you don't know if you're going to go there and win Toronto, you know, believe it or not, Toronto may be cursed when it comes to hockey because they just can't get past the first round too. There's a lot of pressure, that stuff. Yeah. And I mean, look at John Tavares right now. I mean, I'm sure he's happy with making $11 million a year, but I don't know if you want to do that. But again, I don't know. Maybe Petro does want to go. If, if I'm him, Vegas or Florida makes the most sense to me. Vegas, because one, I'm getting all of my money, if not a little bit more because of the tax situation in Vegas. Same can be said about the Florida Panthers. Um, And both of those teams have an opportunity to win a Stanley Cup within the next couple of years. Vegas, 
even more so than any of them. If you look at their goaltending situation, their offense, their defense was their biggest issue in the postseason, why they couldn't get uh, get past that uh, that second round in the postseason. Um, I like the Florida Panthers, too, because they're a young team that needs leadership, and they have money to spend. They just spent $11 million, I think, on their goaltender. How do you make your goaltender better? You put a best one of the best defensemen in front of him. So those are two teams that I like, and I wouldn't be surprised to see a dark horse, and Jamie Rivers has been pumping this tire like the Detroit Red Wings because they'll have a lot of money to spend. You got Steve Eiserman there who knows what a elite defenseman does to a team. Um, and I think Alex Petrangelo, he may not start winning right away, but he at least is going to build that cornerstone for some of those players. But that to me is a long shot because if I'm Petro, I want to win before I want to get paid all of the money. Fantastic. Thanks, man. Danny, I appreciate it, buddy. You got it. Alex Ferrario on 101 ESPN. More of what you want to hear. Scoops with Danny Mac in podcast form on 101 ESPN. You think about legacy. If you're a player, maybe you do and maybe you don't. And that's something that Petro is thinking about. And Yadier Molina, we talked to Joey Vitale this morning and about legacy and a player moving forward. I don't think they think about it as much. You know what I mean? And the, The one question I get asked a lot, Dan, is what was it like? you know, playing in that game or in the Eastern Conference final game seven against the Rangers. Like, like, were you nervous with this? Like, players don't, don't, don't think about any of that stuff. They just, they just go play, you know, and, and the time and the time to really recognize what you did is when you retire. I, I didn't appreciate, I didn't appreciate what was happening when it was happening. Sure. And the, re- the reason why players can't do that is just, I think there's just so much pressure to, to produce and to be productive and, and to stay here as long as you can. So all you're focused on is the process and you don't, you don't even recognize the noise. And, you know, I, I talk to all the players all the time and the one biggest regret is I wish I would have enjoyed it more. Um, so uh, to answer your question, I can't speak for Alex. I can't speak for most players, but from the most players that I've known in my own experience is something that you don't think about long-term. You don't think about the legacy. You don't think about 20 years from now. They're just so driven and they're so obsessed within the moment. And that's what's made them so great though, too. So it's not really a knock on them. It's just kind of part of the process because when you're doing it, you're just doing it. It's just part of it. And then you don't, you don't recognize all the noise and all the nonsense kind of stuff that surrounds it. I wish, I wish I would have recognized them more. And I wish for Alex's sake and for players like Alex, I wish they could see that more too. Uh, but it's very hard. It's very hard when you're in the mix and you're kind of like just around it all the time and there's so much craziness and noise and chaos all the time. So uh, to answer your question, I know I'm kind of jumping around there a little bit, but it, it is hard. It is hard to recognize what is most important in the long term. It, it is. And you think about the money will be there. He's already made $45, $50 million. Yachty's made a ton of money. And you think then also about finishing your career with one team, that one uniform. And in terms of Yachty, uh, we also had Andy Van Slyke on this morning and how he has completely transformed himself. Uh, always has been a terrific defender, but his body has changed from when he started as uh, a catcher in 2004 to where he is in 2020. And to his credit, uh, he's got himself in incredible shape. Not sure he'd be able to be lasting this long without changing his body and he's also changed himself as a hitter and Andy Van Slyke talked about that. Yachty today is not Yachty where he was you know three or four years ago and having said that um, it doesn't mean he's still I don't think going to be a Hall of Fame uh, candidate. I don't know whether it's first ballot or second. It really doesn't matter to me but um, you know for eight, eight years you know or so he was the best defensive catcher in all of baseball. And I think the surprising thing is I think people forget when he first came up, he had a hard time hitting the ball into the outfield. 
and he really learned what it took to hit major league pitching. And I think, given the, the, you know the tools that he had offensively, he has learned to utilize them. And uh, his his biggest asset, Dan, I think, as you, you well know, is uh, his mind is is what has carried him over the course of his career. I mean, his talent is there. I would say his bat speed was average major league bat speed, but he learned to hit the ball the opposite way. And um, the, consequently, when he was able to do that, he didn't have to cheat um, uh, to try to get the fastballs. So um, he was comfortable ball hitting the other way. And when you can do that, you're going to hit for a decent average and you're going to make pitchers stay honest. And I think that's the biggest thing at the major league level. When you learn to keep pitchers honest, uh, it just makes you a better hitter. Incredible career. Congratulations to Yachty. Hit number 2,000 last night. And we've got a doubleheader today against the Brewers. More of what you want to hear. Scoops with Danny Mac in podcast form on 101 ESPN. Uh, is going to join us Great. coming up at 1 o'clock today. One of my favorite dudes. He was so, so fired up. And that was a great moment to see him and have his brother there where no one else can be together. But to have his brother there, pretty cool. It's amazing. It, it was, Dan, I mentioned this last night on Twitter. It, I've basically become numb. And I'm sure you feel it more because you're there. But I've become numb of watching the broadcasts and not seeing fans. Like It's just Part how the deal sports now. are right now. Right. Last night was different for me. Last night was one of the moments where I was like, this this doesn't feel right. Yeah. This should have been different. There should have been a standing ovation. He should have gone over and waved at all the crowd that was thanking him for everything that they've gotten from Yadier Molina over the last 15 plus years. That didn't feel quite right. It was one of the first times where I felt that way. That and the Wainwright complete game. Those are the two moments yep. and probably the Carlson home run. Because the expectations have been high with him. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I would agree. Looking forward to it. Have a great weekend, Appreciate bud. it, Dan. Have a good weekend. Ribs BK coming up next. You have been listening to the TV voice of the St. Louis Cardinals. Scoops with Danny Mac on 101 ESPN.